Welcome, my lords, to the Well-Earned Comforts Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Seth. Thank you for joining us on the Walls of Isengard as we explore the many works of Tolkien and discuss life. We're glad to have you as part of the Fellowship, as there's no telling where we'll be swept off to. It's been uh, only one week. This is probably the quickest turnaround for podcasting we've had in a while, so Seth and I are going to babble like Butterbur. Shouldn't be a whole lot of updates on this, but check in with my brother Seth. How's it going? What, what, what's new in the last week? <laughs> Honestly, not much is new. It's good to be able to do this within a week. I know when we set out to do this, it was the plan to do it weekly, and that really hasn't happened very often, but it's nice mm-hmm. to have a short period between these podcasts and get into the children of Huron here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, as far as what's new with us, really, really not much. Last night, uh, we went to this little thing at the library here where they brought in some Clydesdale horses and the SWAT team and a bunch of like (laughs) tractors and, you know, city of Midland type of stuff uh, for the kids to go in and out of. So we got to see little kids putting on SWAT gear and uh, (laughs) we got to pet the Clydesdales and take pictures with them and all that fun stuff. So that was a a lot of fun. It still hasn't, we had one good snow a couple of weeks ago, but other than that, it's still, It's getting chilly. It's hanging out right in the 30s, but it hasn't hasn't snowed yet, and I'm ready for snow this time of year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Clydesdale, is that one of those? That's a short horse, right? Like the little mini horse? No, I think you're thinking of a Shetland. Um, oh, okay. Clydesdale is like, what I believe, what you'd see in like a Budweiser commercial. Oh, they're, they're pretty the big. Names. Yeah, I mean, this thing was absolutely gorgeous. When I stood up, I took a picture of Amanda standing next to it, and it's back was probably a foot taller than Amanda. So like me oh standing gosh. next to it with its head pointed down, it was still as tall as I was. And it was, I mean, it, I haven't spent much time around horses. You know, I've ridden them a couple of times when we were real little, but they really are just majestic creatures. Yeah, you'd, you'd think I should know all this from living in Kentucky for almost two years now. But <laughs> did you try the uh, old Shadowfax whistle on it to come to no, you? No, I did not. I did not. Uh, <laughs> hey, there's a lot of little kids. You don't want to spook the horse. That's fair. Get kicked in the face or something. <laughs> yeah. But it was a lot of fun. It was good to get outside and take Evelyn. And I mean, she won't remember it, but it was cool to have yeah. her, you know, lightly pet the horse and stuff like that. So that is really neat. And you guys you have, guys? well, real quick, you guys have what the biggest or or largest Christmas shop in Michigan, right? Or what? What's yeah, the deal that's. That? <laughs> that's actually about 45 minutes away in a German town called Frankenmuth. Oh, that's uh, the largest uh, Christmas shop, I believe in the world, but at least in North America, it's, I mean, it's probably like twice the size, if not three times the size of a Costco. Jeez. Um, it's called Bronner's. If you want to Google it, it's, it's a lot of fun to go to, but around this time of year, it's also kind of a nightmare just because of uh. how busy it is. I mean, You've been to like a Broncos game or an Avs game or even a Rockies game. Well, (laughs) where it's like, you know, the game ends and everybody's rushing to their car and it's shoulder to shoulder. And you're just like trying to keep an eye out for people so you don't get lost. That's exactly how Bronner's is this time of year. It's just shoulder to shoulder. The lines are ridiculous, but it is a really cool store. It's a it's a lot of fun to just go and look around. Yeah. Um, Mom and dad Hmm. are actually coming out and. About a week and i know mom yeah. wants to go check it out during this time of year so we'll see how that goes <laughs> yeah take a field trip to it man i didn't realize it's that big i mean i knew it was like you mentioned it was 
like the largest Christmas shop, but I, I mean, I have only imagined Christmas shops being like houses, like the size of a house, you know, not, right. <laughs> not three times the size of Costco. That's insane. Yeah, it's it's absolutely massive. I mean, there's multiple entrances to it. There's directions on where to find this, where to find that. It's it's pretty ridiculous. If you've ever been there, it, it kind of the memory will stick with you. I'm sure. Wow. Man, well, we uh, we've been good. This is we have one more week of students left before we get a break. And that goes for Ariel and I because she works at the high school. So she's got her last wor- uh, day of work for the year on. I believe it's the 16th should be. OK. Um, yeah. So we're excited to have some downtime. Christmas is always really busy when you work at a church, but thankfully, since all my stuff is done throughout the week, I don't have a whole lot of responsibility for like the weekend of, I mean, I have to be there the whole time, but like the prep side of things, it's not super stressful for me as it is for some of the weekend staff, um, sure. which is nice. So as soon as we're done with Wednesdays, we're, I just kind of get to chill and support the rest of the staff until the end of the year. And then we obviously get that whole week off after like the day of Christmas and then through until a new year, um, which will be That's nice. Gonna- I was going to ask, I know Flatirons did that. So I was wondering if, if your church did that as well. Yep. Uh, we don't get quite as much time because I think Flatirons is planning to start the next Sunday, not New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know what their plan is this year. I haven't looked, but that's how it was in the past. Whereas we still have a service on New Year's Day, but we're okay. only doing one service instead of our normal two services. But so I. Yeah, we won't. But but again, since I don't have really any Wednesday or Sunday responsibilities, I don't have to do a whole lot of work in between that time. I I can just be at home with Ariel, and it'll be our four year anniversary on the twenty eighth. So yeah, I remember that night for that. <laughs> well, yeah, it was cold. It was it was <laughs> cold fun and time. snowy. It was fun though. It was a, it was yeah. a beautiful wedding. Oh man, it was it was a lot of fun. I um, think my yeah. toes are still thawing, but it was it was nice. <laughs> I felt bad for all the all the girls who had to wear oh, like, yeah. little just slippers, really, and dresses and stuff. We we at least got the tuxedos, and it's a little warmer for us. But yeah, yeah, we definitely were warmer than they were. But it was still so pretty. Rough. I think it was I think it was twelve degrees and snowing when we did it. We did it outside, obviously, and that was it. Might have been twelve yeah. degrees when it started. It was definitely yeah, not twelve yeah, yeah. degrees when it finished. <laughs> Thankfully, it wasn't that long of a service, but true. Yeah, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was really pretty. It was. It was a lot of fun and very memorable, which is what we wanted. Um, but yeah. Other than that, uh, Ariel's running or just finished a 5K up in Cincinnati. It's like a like the Jingle Bell race or something like that. She, one of our our friends here in in town, like when we were starting the Spartan racing and all that training, she was like, "I want to get back into running," and so she's been, you know, kind of couched to 5K training. I think is what it's called, and so she asked Ariel to do this run with her and Ariel was like, yeah, absolutely. So they should be on their way down from that, which is pretty neat. But other than that, we've just been having fun, enjoying the, the Christmas season. We got our tree up. We watched elf last night and I cooked some amazing steaks. Like I, I, I try to be humble, but well, I use the Traeger. I mean, I just, I just kind of okay. grilled them on the Traeger, but they were phenomenal. They were 26 bucks for three big old ribeyes at Kroger. Nice. They were like half off. And so, I, I was like, yep, I'm gonna do that. And I marinated, marinated them in teriyaki sauce and A1 and a couple other things for like the entire day. It was wonderful. I just uh, had some leftovers. Tem- for what lunch. temperature do you take your, your steaks off at? Like internal temperature? Yeah. Uh, usually around 130. Okay. Depends on how rare you want it. Like these were pretty much perfectly medium. 
I would say. Probably not medium. So they rare. hit medium. maybe like 140 or so after yeah. you took them off. Okay. Yeah. But nice. They could have been a little bit more rare, I suppose, but that I mean they tasted great. Still super I mean, juicy a, and a good medium ribeye is pretty solid. It because yeah. especially with a ribeye with a fatty cut, you know, it's it's gonna be exactly. juicy regardless, even if it's a yeah. medium, you know. Uh-huh. I, I usually actually like to smoke them for an hour before searing them, but Ariel doesn't care for the smoked steak as much. But mm. the plan is for Christmas is I'm going to keep an eye out for a, a prime rib and I'm going to put that on and smoke that. That's what we did for Easter. We I went to work at seven, I think. So I put the I put the prime rib on our Traeger at like 645 left, did Christmas services and everything got home around like two and it was done. Like I just pulled it out wow. and it was ready to go. <laughs> it's like a crock pot for men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It <laughs> sounds so delicious. Fun. It has it has like a Wi-Fi thing, so I was keeping track of the heat on my phone while I was at work. Can you adjust and, it too? Uh-huh. Okay. It's it's cheating. It really is. It's there's no there's very little skill to it. You just I mean, I don't care as long as its steak tastes good, right? And it did. It tasted phenomenal. Um but yeah, so uh, beyond that, I think there's not a whole else to report. So without further ado, we can jump into Riddles in the Dark. What are you trying to be in Rings of Power with your pronunciation? Yeah, I figured I'd chill the R a little bit. <laughs> All right. Uh, why don't you go first this time? I'll find okay. something here. All right. Ooh, this could be interesting. I'll just give you one sentence because it's going to be maybe tough. Uh, <laughs> so you're going to give me one sentence because it'll be hard. That makes sense. It, it, it could be easier. Um, okay. All right. But All here right. we go. I hope we shall meet again someday when things are merry once more. He said, I should like nothing better than to stay in your house in peace for a while. Uh, hmm. I really feel like that's Frodo talking to Faramir. But you I are... don't... You are incorrect as... I know it it's Frodo talking. Yeah, I'm yes, trying to... Yes, rem- you are correct there. I'm trying to think. Here, read it one more time here. I hope we shall meet again someday, when things are merry once more. I should like nothing better than to stay in your house in peace for a while. Hmm. I mean, my initial guess would definitely be... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Would that be Frodo speaking to? No, not it wouldn't be. He wouldn't be speaking to Barlaman, would he? Like, yeah, on, like on the return journey. No, or is that on the way out? It's on the way out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's after okay. they meet Strider and they're leaving. Okay, and they're yeah. He was talking to Barlaman. I was trying to. I just yeah. felt like it was way too early in the story, but okay. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Yeah, I, I mean that was. I'm surprised you got Frodo right off the bat like that. He does have that kind of that the way, way the way he talks. Yeah, the way he speaks is that's a very Frodo esque way of saying that. I could have just ah. said "Morning, Longshanks." Off early, <laughs> found some friends at last. <laughs> would have known exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. Oh yeah, that would have been easy. No, yeah. that was a good challenge. It missed cool. that one. Well, you've been so good the last couple episodes. We needed a <laughs> a, a tougher one. I just felt like that was too early in the story, but no, that was that was perfect. Yeah. All right. Um, this could be. I don't know how this one will go. We'll see. All right. I observe my good blank said blank that with great care you say dwelt was grew 
What about is? Is he dead? What? <laughs> There's too many blanks in there. I, I did, it didn't sound like a coherent sentence. Just say it one more time. I observe, I observe my good blank. So I observe my good insert name. Sure. Said insert name. So somebody's <laughs> talking to somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That with great care, you say dwelt, was, grew. What about is? Is he dead? Uh, dwelt was grew is he dead let me let me read a little bit more no not dead so far as i know said blank but he is gone yes he is gone seven days i let him go oh is this uh the very end of the return of the king when they're coming back to treebeard at tower of Horthink and they're asking hey where's saruman yeah yeah okay i i knew it was treebeard but i didn't know i didn't know what he like what the reference was or what he was talking about yeah i mean if i read it the way it's set like with the names then it's just too easy it's i observed yeah. my good fanghorn said gandalf uh yeah 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 so yeah well done though that was good. thanks thanks that was a fun one that was a good little riddles in the dark there yes indeed riddles in the dark is always a good time now jumping into meat and potatoes for today so like seth and i talked about last podcast hopefully you have grabbed your copy of Children of Hurin, and you have opened it up and started reading. Today we got through the first chapter. The plan was to do the first two chapters, but there was a lot in that first chapter. We wanted to give it plenty of time to explain a lot of the background of these characters because Seth and I were talking, and this chapter just kind of jumps straight into the story. And if, again, if you have no idea what's going on, you don't understand the context or anything like that. So before we jump into the chapter itself, I just had a couple quick notes from kind of the preface and the introduction. So. This is a book that was edited by Christopher Tolkien, that is J.R.R. Tolkien's son. And so Christopher actually did a lot of the writing here. And he, for the introduction piece, mentioned how important this was to his father. As I've been reading more and more of other than Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, you kind of tell that Tolkien cared a lot more about first and second age stuff than he did about Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, even yep. though those are the yep. big ones that people know because of the you know, cinematics to them. But Tolkien really, really cared about like the children of Hurin, this was a very important story to him, specifically because of the character of Turin. And Tolkien, uh, Christopher Tolkien mentions a little bit about why in the preface here. Let me see if I can find it again. But he was, uh, he was saying that the character of Turin was of deep significance to my father. And in dialogue of directness and immediacy, he achieved a poignant portrait of his boyhood, essential to the whole. His severity and lack of gaiety, his sense of justice, his compassion... Of, of Hurin also, quick, gay, sanguine, and of Morwen, his mother, reserved, courageous, and proud, and the life of the household in the, co in the cold country of Dorloman during the years already full of fear after Morgoth broke the siege of Angbad before Turin was born. So he is pretty much saying, like, these, these characters mean a lot to, to Tolkien, and he wrote their personalities for a reason, like the way that he did. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But uh, this is one of the three great tales, as J.R.R. Tolkien would have claimed them. That is The Fall of Gondolin, Baron and Luthien, and then, of course, the one that we're reading now. The Children of Hurin is what he considered the three great tales. He didn't consider The War of the Ring or, or The Hobbit as one of the three great tales. So it's interesting that we get to explore that. One of the great tales that is lesser known. Yeah, and this one is a lot more fleshed out than the other two. If you read the fall of Gondolin or Baron and Luthien, a lot of the 
book itself is different versions of the same story that are, you know, there's four or five different versions of Baron and Luthien of, of uh, the fall of Gondolin. Like there's differences. Whereas children of Hurin is kind of just open and closed. It's a story from start to finish. There's not different versions of it. Uh, there is another version of this story that is in the Silmarillion. And that part of the one that's in the Silmarillion is like an abridged version of this. So yeah. it's very short. It's very, it leaves out a lot of the detail. It's basically just giving you the history of the story. Whereas this, as Sam said, great tale really dives into the story itself. So kind of picking up on this story, one of a couple of really important things to know is just the time frame and the locations of where this story primarily takes place. So this is after the Dagor Bragalak or the Battle of Sudden Flame, in which, as Sam mentioned, reading that part from Christopher Tolkien, that was when Morgoth broke the the Siege of Angband with the Battle of Sudden Flame, where he released the dragons and all this fire just to break break the siege and uh, scorched all the earth in front of in front of the mountains of Angband and everything. So this is leading, it's after that, and it's leading up to the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, or the Near Nyeth Arnoidiad. Dang, that was really good, like, pronunciation. Near Nyeth <laughs> I kept, Arnoidiad. <laughs> I kept reading that, like, I don't know how to pronounce this. But I guess you do, you do listen to it, so you maybe hear it a bit better. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I listen, I much prefer to listen to the books. Um, and especially this one is really cool, because it's the audible version is read by Christopher Lee, or oh. the guy that plays Sauron. So I really that's enjoy awesome. this version. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so that's kind of the time frame that this takes place is it leads up to the near Nyeth Arnoidiad. That's kind of what we'll cover here in the first chapter. And then the life of Turin takes place just directly after that. Um, kind of as we'll mention a little bit later in here, this is also right around the time where Baron and Luthien steal one of the Silmarils uh, from Morgoth's crown. And the location that Turin grows up in is a place called Dor Loman, which is a mountain range that's kind of on the northwest part of Beleriand or Middle-earth or this part of Middle-earth before it fell into the sea at the end of the First Age. Um, and it's under the rule of King Fingolfin, I believe, uh, one of the elves. But Hurin is the lord of Dor Loman, and he's close friends with Fingolfin. And so he's given this land for his uh, for his rule and his people and everything um so like i say every time you're gonna want a map because we reference a lot of locations throughout this story and it'll be very helpful to kind of be able to piece together exactly where turin is traveling throughout this story uh just based on all that so with all that being said uh this story picks up when hurin and his brother huor are uh traveling as young men fighting off orcs in the service of their father and the rest of the men. So they're not Turin has, or I'm sorry, Hurin hasn't taken over the Lordship of Dor Loman yet. He's about 17 years old and he was the old, the elder to his brother, uh, Huor. And speaking about their childhood a little bit, it was, uh, that Hurin was actually shorter than his brother, uh, Huor and Huor, Hurin, sorry, these names are so close that they're hard <laughs> yeah. to not mess up. Um, but Hurin was described as strong in body and fiery of mood, but in the fire in him burned steadily and he had great endurance of will. Uh, so as we kind of describe, you know, Hurin and Morwen, Turin's mom and dad, pick up on the little character traits because as Sam was 
talking about earlier, Turin really uh, talks about those character traits quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that Hurin is the older brother, but yet he's shorter than his younger brother. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, let's see. <laughs> where is... Uh, uh, <laughs> let me just keep reading here. Um, so yes, Huor was the tallest of all the Adain. So he was the tallest <laughs> of all the, the great men of Middle-earth, except his son Tuor, who is a very important character later on with the fall of Gondolin. Um, but as Tolkien describes, Huor was a swift runner, but when he raced his brother, if the race was long, Hurin would be the first home because he ran as strongly at the end as he did the beginning. Okay, maybe you can run faster than I can or longer, better than I can. But I mean, I'm taller than you, obviously tallest of all men. You know, so there's just parallels here between <laughs> like fantasy and reality. Like we, you know, <laughs> you know, Sam, I would completely agree, which is why uh, I'm the Lord of Dorlom. And if that's what you get. Ah, okay. Yeah. never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Tolkien describes these two brothers as having great love and they were rarely parted in their youth. They did everything together. Um, three years. I have a little brother that's three years younger than me. That's Steven. And it's an interesting age gap because the little brother, you know, is trying to gain respect from the older brother and the older brother is kind of like, no, you have to respect me. I don't need to respect you. And there's a lot of interesting dynamics there. So it's interesting to me that, that Tolkien says that there was great love and they were rarely parted, um, which I think is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Hurin married Morwen, who is of the house of Beor, which is the same house as Baron. So she was actually of close kin. I think she was like a cousin. Um, to Baron, I'd have to check the genealogy. It's kind of it's kind of confusing, um, but she was described as being tall and dark haired, and the men called her Elidwen, which meant Elven Fair. And she was stern of mood and proud, but she was an exile living in Dorlom, and after Dorthonian was ruined during the Bragalak. So Dorthonian was a location kind of just to the east of, of Dor Loman, outside of the mountain range that was scorched by the, the Battle of Sudden Flame, and her people uh, flee, fleed from there at that time. Uh, so together, they had three children. They had Turin, who was the oldest, Urwin, who was also called Laliath, and later on, also Neonor. Um, and just to talk about Huor for a second, he married Rion, who was the cousin of Morwen? So Morwen and Rion were uh, of kin, and Rion was described as being gentle-hearted and loved neither hunting nor war. She loved the trees, the flowers, and may, was a maker of songs, and and she was a really good singer. Uh, so she wasn't really cut out for this time period in in Balerion's history, with so much uncertainty and fear growing of Morgoth and the wars that were about to uh, come up. And this was actually proved later by her early death at the, uh, and I can't say this one, the Haddon and Nyath, which is the Mound of Tears, which we'll probably touch on a little bit later. But after the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, that is actually where Morgoth was trying to create a mound to dismay the elves and men. He gathered all the bodies, um, which I think actually Rings of Power kind of alluded to. At yeah. one point with Galadriel putting the helmet, which isn't how it happened anyways. It was a mound made by Morgoth. Um, so I don't know. But uh, yeah, so Rion actually died at a pretty young age. Uh, and she just went to the mound and basically gave up. Um, mm. But yeah, so that's kind of the, the younger life of 
um, Huor and Hurin. Yeah, like Seth said, these guys as brothers stayed together all the time. They did a lot of things together and specifically, they would fight Morgoth together. They would fight off his minions and his orcs and so as they were doing this at one point as the story picks up in the book, the two brothers were actually ambushed by a pack of orcs and the company that they were with was just scattered and they ran as far as the fort of Brithiak, is that how you say it? Brithiak? Brithiak. Brethiak, Brethiak. Yeah. <clears throat> when Ulmo, he is one of the Valor we've talked about, he governs the, the waters, right? And so Ulmo actually protects these brothers by using mist coming up from the river to conceal them. So again, the orcs are trying to, trying to ambush them and take these guys out. And then uh, Ulmo it covers them with the mist of the river to, to conceal them. Which is interesting to me because... In Tolkien's Unfinished Tales about the ride of um, Errol, the young, coming down to uh, to help the steward of Gondor at the time. They ride down from the north, and they ride past Lothlorien, and Galadriel does very much the, sim- like the same thing in creating mm-hmm. mist so that they can travel through um, right in front of uh, right in front of Dol Guldor without being seen. So it's just an interesting oh. parallel. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, but from there, they crossed over the ford and into Dimbar, where they were wandered in great hardship beneath the walls of the Chrysogrim. And this is where the Ires of the Eagles um, are in the mountains that they encircle on top of the hidden city of Gondolin. So they're kind of below that, and obviously the Eagles would see them. And so Thorondor, Lord of Eagles, we've talked about him before in Baron and Luthien, but he sees them from afar, the two brothers. And he goes down and rescues them. Again, eagles are not, like, they're sentient beings, so they have, they can speak, they have a mind of their own, and they kind of do whatever they want. So it's interesting that they, this guy, this this lord of eagles was like, yeah, I'll take pity on these two guys, I'll go down and swoop them up and bear them away. But he actually takes them to the hidden city of Gondolin, which I don't understand why he didn't just be like, hey, I'll take you back home to your family. Instead, he takes them to where no man has ever been, to the hidden elf city of Gondolin. And so he, he swoops down and they dwelt there um, for about a year as Turgon, the king of Gondolin, welcomed them kindly. He was very happy to have them there and he learned much wisdom from them and they learned much wisdom from, from the elves and learned uh, of the counsels of this guy, Turgon, the king of the elves. And Turgon wanted to keep them there. He wanted to have them there for as long as, as they would live. Obviously, elves being immortal, you know, he probably didn't think of really how long these guys would actually live because you know they wouldn't. Are they, they're not they're not descendants of Numenor, right? So they don't even have long well, life, this, right? This is before all of that. These are right. the ancestors. So, yeah, these are the ancestors of Arendelle, basically. Tuor is the grandfather of Arendelle. So they don't have the the gift of long life at this point, right? No. I mean, I yeah. think they still live longer than like a normal person uh, at sure. this point in time, but not like, you know, not hundreds of years at least. Yeah. So Turgon is like, hey, I want to hang out with you guys. I want to keep you here. But also because there was a law that no man could actually find their way to this secret kingdom. So even though, you know, Hur and Hurin don't know how to get to Gondolin because they were pretty much airdropped by eagles. He's like, hey, I can't really let you leave either because of our law of not letting anyone know where this uh, kingdom is. And for very obvious reasons, as we'll see much later on. But uh, Hurin responds to Turgon with is just kind of, he tells him like, Hey, this is what it's like to be a man. So let me, let me tell you this. He says, Lord, we're but mortal men. And unlike the Eldar, they may endure for long years, awaiting battle with their enemies in some far distant day. But for us, the time is short. 
and our hope and strength soon wither. Moreover, we did not find the road until unto Gondolin, and indeed we do not know for sure where the city stands, for we were brought in here out of fear and wonder by the highways of the air, and in mercy of our eyes, in and in mercy our eyes were veiled. So he's pretty much saying like, like we don't have the gift of long life like you guys do. We have a family we got to get back to. Like our strength is withering. Like we have a lot more fighting to do and we just kind of have to get back. And trust us when we say this, we have no idea where we are. <laughs> yeah, I think that this is a really interesting conversation because it's only a couple paragraphs long, but it really, really shows the difference in thought process and the sense of urgency between men and elves. Um, I know, I don't know if it was Tolkien himself that described men in this way, but um, I heard it described as the men were the movers of Middle Earth. Like things did not happen unless men prompted them to happen. And that's really because of this conversation. I mean, the elves live forever so they can bide their time and wait for the perfect moment before leaving to do what they have to do. But since men's lives are so short and they don't know what happens to them after, they have this this innate sense of urgency that they have to uh, go do battle and try to do better for not only themselves, but their future generations, because there could be, you know, a dozen generations of men before an elf decides that it's time to go to battle. Yeah, definitely. So it, yeah, it, it really does show the contrast of, like you said, the thought process and also just like the difference Tolkien created in each race and how there's personalities woven into as well. Uh, but to this, Turgon decided, okay, fine. I'll relent. You guys can leave the same way that you came. So he's saying, if you can figure out a way to get back on an eagle, you can leave. <laughs> but uh, thankfully, Thrandir was willing to take them back. He kind of humbled himself because, again, eagles aren't just air taxis. You can't just call them up and be like, hey, get over here. <laughs> it's of their own will. And so Thrandir, Lord of Eagles, is like, yeah, sure, I'll, boy I'll, I'll take you guys back. And so they take him back. But uh, Maeglin, which was the nephew of the king, was not grieved at all at their going. And he actually begrudged them for their favor with the king. So he was jealous of the attention and the favor they got from Turgon. And this is really important to the story of the fall of Gondolin, as Huor's son is the father of Erendil. So, uh, again, there's a lot of tie-ins there that it's important because, you know, when you read through it, you're like, why is that important? I don't understand. I don't even know who this guy is. But obviously there's more to it further on. But upon their return to Dor Loman, everyone was shocked because you'd think they'd been gone for almost a year wandering the wilderness, living off of, you know, berries or fruits or hunting or whatever it is. And Probably yet they, getting chased by orcs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting scraped up, getting, you know, just maybe malnourished. And yet they came back looking as princes <laughs> rather than men who'd struggled in the wild. And so they were questioned like, hey, where, where'd you guys go? Like, how, how do you come back looking so well? And of course, they would not reveal because of the oath they, they, they gave to Turgon to not reveal where they were, even though they couldn't say where how to get back there. They still didn't even say that they went to Gondolin at all. Yeah. Um, so then jumping forward uh, to Hurin and Morwen's marriage, this is, um, you know, the time when Turin was born and he was actually about when he was about five years old. Uh, the elves had nearly finished with their great councils and were ready to pressure Morgoth and Angband. So this is the Council of Maedhros where he's trying to rally all the rest of the sons of Feanor that are still alive. He's trying to rally all the other elven kings and the men and the Edain to come together and just truly unite under one big battle plan to get rid of Morgoth for good. Um, this is like their best chance to actually get rid of Morgoth. And so this is during the time of planning for all that, when Turin was about five. Um, and 
he had a sister named Urwin, uh, or Laliath, as she is called. Um, and she was called Laliath because of the sound um, of her laughter was like the sound of a merry stream out of the hills that ran past her father's house, and people's hearts were glad when she was among them. So she was just a little kid, and people just loved her. Being in her presence, she was just a joy to be around, which, being a father now, I can... Evelyn hasn't even started laughing yet other than like a one-off giggle here and there, but I can already, I can already see that, you know? So it's like, I can see why they called her Liliath. Um, but unfortunately at this time when Liliath was three and Turin was five, an evil breath was released from Angband and many grew sick and died, uh, from this evil breath, which kind of makes me wonder, is it just like a normal sickness? Is it kind of like the black breath that the Nazgul put out there what what is it how does it determine who dies and stuff you know yeah and i wonder too if this is a parallel to you know tolkien's time in the battle of Somme and and the and the gas warfare right like like the poisonous fumes that um, the germans would drop and you'd have to wear gas masks because you know you couldn't really get through it and you know that's a lot of the way they fought they fought that way is is through spreading poisonous gases across the lands and just killing everything like trees and flowers and people obviously too. And so I wonder if this is just kind of his way of processing through that and using it as, as a, a war tactic for Morgoth. Yeah. I, I think that's actually an excellent point. Cause yeah, the gas warfare was huge during world war one and he obviously experienced that firsthand. And I wonder kind of like you're saying, is it his like almost therapy in a way of like, just like explaining to himself through this medium, like what happened, how to, how did we do this? Uh, so that's interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks for that. I like that. Sure. Um, it was described as Turin was less loved than his sister. Uh, so for himself, he was dark haired like his mom. Uh, whereas his dad, Hurin was of the house of Hador, the golden head. So he was blonde and he was, um, I, I don't know. I kind of imagined him to look a little bit like Tolkis. Um, yeah. but his mom Morwen was like Baron who was dark raven haired. Um, so he actually ended up more like his mom in looks. Uh, he was dark haired like his mother and alike her in mood. Also, he was not merry and spoke little though. He learned to speak at a young age and always appeared older than he was. Um, but he was actually very slow to forget injustice or mockery, but the fire of his father burned inside him and could be sudden and fierce. And so if you think about the kind of the contrast of Liliath versus him, she was happy and just a little kid full of joy. And he was very stoic and reserved. And I don't know that it's maybe moody would even be a good word for it, but mm. um, he was just quick to have that, that sudden um, fire that was constantly burning inside him. And you'll see that a lot throughout the story. It happens all the time. Um, so this is really setting the stage for a lot of his actions down the road. Then Tolkien goes on to describe, yet he was quick to pity, and the hurts or sadness of living things moved him to tears. He loved his mother because she spoke to him forthright and plain, and he rarely saw his father because Hurin was often out at battle. Um, and when Hurin did spoke to him, Turin disliked the quick speech that seemed full of strange words, jests, and half-meanings. Um, so his mom was very much just like short and to the point kind of stoic non-emotional this is what's going on whereas when dad came back from battle 
It was full of jests and sayings and things that he couldn't really process because he was used to the way his mom talked, which was straight to the point. Mm. Um, and I also think it's interesting that he was moved to tears by the hurt of, uh, you know, of living things. So he, he had a good heart. He just kind of had an interesting contrast in his personality. Um, at this age, though, his heart was given to his sister. And he didn't actually play with her very often, but he always followed her wherever she went and kind of stood outside of her, her field of view, but always was protecting her. He saw it as his role to protect his sister. Um, and he would just guard her and remain unseen, which is really sad that she, you know, ends up passing away from that evil breath. Yeah, I was just thinking about that as she, as he's saying, like he he felt the need to protect her and guard her. And even though... Sarah's older than all three of us boys. I feel like we always had that feeling of needing to protect her. And, and she's a strong, like Sarah is a super strong woman, can definitely find She's more than capable on her own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, whenever she'd bring a guy home to meet, meet us or something, we'd always give him the, the, the brother treatment to see how strong he was, how tough he was, what he, what he could withstand. And uh, so I, I, that just kind of makes me chuckle, knowing the yeah. relationship there. For sure. But in that same year, as Seth mentioned and alluded to, uh, both Lalith and Turin became sick with the evil breath, and that became like uh, uh, very long fevers in the dark. And uh, But Turin actually healed after a little while um, from that fever, and I guess he has a nurse, because again, they're, they're kind of royal, family of royalty at this point, right? So he's got a yep, nurse, yep. and he was asking her, he's like, so I feel a little bit better now, how's, how's my sister? How's Lalith? And she responded by saying, you have to ask your mother for tidings. And then she actually also says, but don't refer to her as Lalith anymore. Refer to her as Irwin, her, her real name. And, and this was confusing to, to Turin. And you know, I was reading this aloud to Ariel and I was like, why? She, she asked me, she's like, why is she being so vague about it? I was like, well, I think she didn't think it was her place to, to yeah. share the news of what just happened. And so, so Turin goes to his, his mom and sure enough, finds out that his younger sister's dead from the black breath, which was awful. It, it, it tore them apart um, emotionally. Yeah. And it's interesting too. We didn't put this into a document, but at one point Hurin describes Lilith as like an elf child and fairer and potentially briefer. And it, it almost like foreshadows the fact that she's not meant to be around at this point in time. Like she's too, delicate in a way she's too pure for this period of history yeah yeah definitely it's such a dark time and 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 we didn't really mention this at the beginning of the story but i mean this is not considered a it's a great tale yes it's but it's not considered a happy tale it's not considered even a a, like a joyful tale like there's a happy ending no it's it's literally called one of the tragedies of tolkien and so probably the ending is the ending is absolutely tragic yeah probably should have maybe put that as a precursor (laughs) precursor to everybody listening but uh, ta-da! It's a tragedy, um, as we see here with the first death of somebody really, really close to Turin. Um, yeah, his, so his his sister is is dead, and and she. It's interesting the different ways people mourn, right? So Morwen didn't take comfort in anyone but herself, uh, which is interesting. She, like she didn't care about anyone else's uh, pity or mourning. She just kind of secluded into herself. Um, but yet yeah, Hurin, so Turin's dad, he mourned openly. He was like pretty much was telling everybody about how much, um, how much it hurt, and and Tolkien says that Turin wept alone at night. 
So he had the feelings and he was sad, but he wouldn't really share it with other people. He waited, you know, to, to nightfall where he could do it alone and, and quiet. But at one point, Hurin took up his harp because he wanted to make a song of lamentation for her. And as he was trying to figure out the words and trying to create a melody, he just figured he couldn't. And he, I don't, it, Tolkien says he breaks the harp. So I don't know if he like smashes it on the ground, blew it up or just tore it apart. But like, that's just how, how hurt he was and how, how much pain he was in because of it. So he just breaks his harp instead. And he actually even curses Morgoth as he's yeah. doing that as well. But Turin, growing up, had a friend that he would often speak to, and his name was Sador. And he was an older man in the service of Hurin, so one of his dad's uh, servants. But, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at this, but he was lame because he accidentally hewed his own foot, and uh, so he, he, he kind of cut off part of one of his own feet. And so he was lame, and so he couldn't really do a whole lot. And Turin called him uh, Labladal, which means hop a foot, which is just great. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's such a little kid thing where it's like, oh, yeah. he's hopping around. I'm going to call him hop a foot without realizing <laughs> that, you know what? That could be considered like a derogatory term towards somebody. Yeah. But uh, I mean, Sador didn't take it personally. He knew that it was not, uh, you know, he was not making fun of him, but it was a term of actual love and, and pity and not in scorn. But they, they would talk for hours on end. They uh, tour and loved hearing all the stories of uh, old hop a foot there. Um, but Sador was a woodworker, and he would tell him about all the times before his accident, and speaking of all the battles he'd fought in, and how he'd watched his his father Hurin take charge of his uh, of of the of the armies and stuff like that. But he eventually, Sador eventually asked for leave to return to the woods, which is where he got his hurt, where he I guess hewed part of his foot off. But one of the one of the really great Tolkien quotes comes from from this section of the book. He says, "For a man that flees from his fear." may find that he has only taken a shortcut to meet it. This is a, I love this, I love this quote because it, it, it's so true for a lot of us. Like we were afraid of something and so we turn the other way and then all of a sudden we get smacked in the face with what we were just afraid of. Yeah, and so this is kind of, I didn't type this out too well in the chat or in the document, but this is Sador, he's talking to Turin about all the times he was in battle and everything as a younger a younger man before his injury. And he basically says, I had seen enough of war. I had seen enough of pain and of blood. And I asked to leave to go back to the woods that I so desired to be in. So basically he was like, I've seen enough of war. I don't want to be in it anymore. Can I just leave? I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to see any more hurt. I just want to go back home. And he was granted that leave. And that's when he went home and injured himself. And so he's kind of saying, just like Sam said, like, well, he was scared of battle and being hurt and seeing all this pain and suffering that he went and he was alone in the woods and was trying to chop something down and ended up getting his foot instead. Yes. I, I did. I did read that part. I, I realized I, I said it the, the wrong way, but yeah. Yeah. He tried to run away from war and, and chop part of his foot off. Um, but again, that's one of my favorite quotes that I, I hear from Tolkien is you, you can't just run away from your fear. It doesn't work that way. You'll, you'll find yourself, uh, finding a shortcut to meet it, as he says. Yeah, and I wonder if that was a quote out of his own experience during World War One. I. I wonder if he saw a lot of cowardice on the battlefield that resulted in those people losing their lives, potentially. You know, somebody sure. not following orders, losing their mind, going in the opposite direction that they're supposed to, and then by happenstance, that person, you know, gets killed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, or perhaps Tolkien even experienced this in his own life through himself, where there were times, you know, potentially through World War One or anything else where he kind of, you know, turned his back on what he feared and ended up getting slapped in the face with it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Sador actually talked to Turin about all these different things, and he answered a ton of questions because Turin was just pepper him with questions. Because if you think about it, his dad wasn't really around much. Um, and when he was, he didn't really connect with him on a super personal level because his dad spoke very differently in a way that was hard for Turin to interpret. Um, and then his mom was rather closed off. She was rather stoic and just short and to the point. And so in Sador, I think he, it was kind of like a father figure to him. Um, yeah. because he was able to ask all these questions and try to process everything, process the death of his sister, process, um, you know, just the crap that's going on in their lives right now. And this made Sador feel rather uncomfortable because he felt like somebody nearer of Ken should answer these questions. Um, but they did go on to chat and they spoke of the immortality of the elves and the passing of Lelith and the growing fear of Morgoth uh, that was mounting throughout this period of time. And at one point, uh, Sador talks about being afraid and, and uh, Turin responds by saying, well, my father's not afraid and I will not be, or at least as my mother, I will be afraid and not show it. Um, and again, that's kind of an interesting uh, insight to both of, um, both of his parents, because Hurin is this master warrior who's the Lord of Dor Loman, who, you know, is a great warrior. So he doesn't show fear. He just, he fights. And then, um, Morwen is very stoic and he's like, well, I know she feels fear, but she just doesn't show it to anybody. Yeah. And this is an interesting, just aside as far as the way that we experience emotions and obviously he like they're going through a lot of grief and sadness and i was talking to my students uh, a couple weeks ago we were talking about anger and i was telling them how uh, especially for us guys we can lump on every single emotion that we feel and put it in anger you know so if we're scared it'll show up as anger you know i I gave the example like for them and their you know their their state right now they're in school and stuff like if you if you're your your teacher gives you a surprise test that you weren't expecting it scares you but you're angry and you feel like oh this isn't fair like i shouldn't have to do this and you get angry because you're afraid of the test you know something like that and and the same is true for for grief and sadness too is is instead of feeling that sadness and emotion we we jump straight to anger and i kind of think that's what he's getting at to in here because obviously we know he's a very emotional guy and you know it, as you mentioned, he would cry at the the death of living things and stuff like that. But then we see the death of his sister and he's starting internalizing things a bit more and he's only crying at night and starting to shut off that emotional side of him to be more like his, his parents in that sense of being able to just put all his emotions aside and just lead with, with that, that strength and anger and, and powerfulness. That's actually a really good point. And, it's kind of like a we've turned into like a psychological analysis of Turin, <laughs> but as the story goes on and a lot of rash decisions that that Turin makes throughout this story that ultimately get him in trouble and lead to tragedy, um, I think can kind of be pinned back to what you're saying, Sam, is that he feels these different emotions, but he doesn't know what to do with them. So he it comes out in like a brash anger where he's going to do what he's going to do and anybody in his way is going to get get run over. And like I said, you'll see that happen time and time again. Um, so that's interesting. That's a very, yeah, yeah that'll be interesting to see 
you know, as as we go over the story, you know, to reference back to kind of him in his younger years and I don't know, the psychological analysis. <laughs> sure. Uh, so at this point, uh, it's skip, we skip ahead a few years to where uh, Turin is eight years old. And this is when there are really great rumors of uh, mustering and gathering of arms. And Hurin uh, often looked at Turin, and I love the way Tolkien describes this. He, he said that Hurin looked at Turin, so this is father looking at son, as a man might look at something dear that he must depart from. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel this way when I'm leaving Amanda or Evelyn and it's like, you just look at them and you take an extra second. Like, I really don't want to leave you. I know I have to, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to miss out on this. And, uh, Huron is actually looking at Turin this way. So even without all of, uh, you know, not having a super great personal relationship, it's clear that that Hurin is still a good father and he loves Turin uh, immensely. And so he keeps sure. looking at him that way. And this is because there's that preparation of the of the councils of Maithros that we had talked about. And Hurin knows that the that they're about to go to battle. Um, and this battle ended up being the near Nyath Arnoidiad. Um, and there's a really interesting conversation in our books. It's like page 46, 47. I don't know uh, what books versions you guys are reading, uh, but it's with Hurin speaking to Morwen. So husband and wife speaking about the upcoming departure and what to do if things go south. And it's really interesting, the back and forth between the two. It's the way they they discuss uh, this, but there's just a little... A little excerpt that that Hurin gives Morwen, and it's just instructions on what to happen. Um, and he basically told her, "Go south as swiftly as you can, um, and if I live, I shall follow, and I shall find you. Though I have to search through all of Beleriand." And Morwen is like, "Well, Beleriand is large, <laughs> and I. This is an important little excerpt because I don't want to spoil things too much, but." he finds her at the end of the book. Um, so it's kind of bringing it full circle, even though everything is tragic and I'm not going to go into it more than that, but he's basically predicting right now that he will end up finding her again. That is a pretty um, big spoiler. Jeez. Well, I, sorry. I mean, it's, <laughs> it really, I don't know. It's important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's good to reference back to. Yeah. Sorry. I probably should have said spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> or just shut my mouth. I don't know. Wow, that's fine. So now we, as we've seen, his dad, Hurin, is starting to, even if he's not giving Turin all the attention Turin thinks he should or having the good conversations he thinks he should, he still really deeply cares for him, as Seth mentioned. And on the morning of Turin's birthday, his father gave him an elf blade and said, you overtop me already, son of Mormon. Soon you will be as high on your own feet. And that day... Many may fear your blade. So he's pretty much saying, like, you're becoming tall and strong, and you're going to be a man soon, and you're going to have to fight. And, you know, hopefully people are afraid of what they see in you. So he's, he's trying to encourage him and uh, spur him on in, in that. But Turin ran from his room and went away alone. And, and Tolkien, he, he writes this. It's really, really cool how he, how he writes this. He says, in his heart was a warmth, like the warmth of the sun, upon the cold earth that sets the growth astir. And he repeated to himself his father's words. So this meant so much to him. Like if, if you've ever been like just showered with affirmation and encouragement, you just, that, yeah, that warmth in, 
in your heart and your stomach you just feel it and and you repeat it to yourself again and again like yeah maybe this maybe this is true about me and so that's kind of what Turin is doing as he's he's walking away from his dad and and this is just a great example again of how much impact a good father can have on a child even for just a few glimpses like how much influence that our fathers have over us and i can't tell you how many times dad has you know given me those kind of words of encouragement whether i'm down or whether he just you know turns around and is like man sam i think you're great like you're an awesome young man and i i love the the man you become like I don't know. Mom says it a lot, obviously, and she's a great encourager, and I love that. But just something different when when your dad says it about you, because you know, I mean, maybe he has to say it, sure, but it just seems so much more powerful coming from the guy yeah. that you've looked up to your entire life and hearing that you might be even just a s- slight image of what he was. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know. I don't think he has to say it. I mean, there's plenty of fathers that don't say it. There's plenty of sure. fathers that don't say "I love you," that don't give that kind of affirmation. Like you're saying, that's something that I'm forever grateful for is I never once questioned whether or not dad was proud of us. I mean, he disciplined us and, you know, taught us things, but at the end of the day, you knew he loved you and you knew he was proud of you. And even to this day, being a father, he's, I mean, he's said to me like, wow, I like the way you, you handle Evelyn. I'm proud of you. And just like you're saying, I mean, it didn't matter what it was. Dad always went out of his way to, to say how proud he was of us. And it makes a huge difference. It really gives you just like Tolkien says that warmth, um, uh, like a warm sun upon the cold earth that sets growth astir, which is the way, like the way he's saying that he's basically saying through a cold, dark winter, then the sun comes out, sheds warmth, melts away all the cold, and then causes the trees to start sprouting, the grass to start growing, the animals to start moving around. It's literally causing growth to stir. And that's what that affirmation is doing, um, which is just kind of a beautiful thing that, okay, I, I can grow into this manhood because I'm being showered with that warmth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really neat. And man, again, not to spend too much time on this, but Tolkien never really knew his father because he was an orphan. His father died really, really young. And then his mom died not song, not too long after that. And so yep. you got to wonder too, like, where did he even get this? to be able to share in, or maybe it's like what I wish I would have had as a kid. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that he had plenty of decent father figures growing up you know, in the orphanage and everything else, but man, I don't know. I just, it breaks my heart that he didn't have a dad and yet he's writing about the power of, of a father's words towards his son. That's, that's an, that's a really good point. He's, I, I wonder if he's writing more from his experience as a father versus as a child. Mm. Um, even though he's writing from Turin, the child's perspective in this, sure. I wonder if he's writing from more of the father's perspective. Cause that's it. I never, I never put that together. I guess. Yeah, you're right. He, he didn't really have a father. Um, but yet he writes with such truth and like hard, fast truth that if you've experienced it, you know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Well, as as much as this moment meant to Turin, he he decides to take this elf knife that his father gave him, and he gives it to Sador, uh, his friend, because he loved and pitied him. And uh, which is interesting, Sador's like, "What do you scorn your father's gift? Like, do you not want yeah. your dad's gift?" And Turin's like, "No, it's not that at all. It's just like I want I want you to be seen in better light among the people around here." And so that's exactly what happened. And Sador's standing within Dorloman where they're living. 
uh, he was treated more kindly. It, it rose. And so even though he was known as the guy that cut off part of his own foot, Haba foot, you know, it, because of being able to like carry on this knife, it was kind of a, a sign of a bit more nobility and honor. And so it was really neat how Turin took something that obviously meant so much to him and gave it off. But it also shows the parallel of like the things that really matter. You know, yeah. you can have a, a tangible gift, you know, a, a thing, and yet you can pass that away. But yet he keeps the words of his father as kind of his own gift. Like yeah, that was enough. He doesn't need, he doesn't need the material things. Uh, that's so. actually, uh, you took that to another level. I didn't even <laughs> think of that when I read it, but that's a, that's an excellent point. That's a, I'm a pastor. That's just what I do. Yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> that's fair. Um, I think it is interesting too, because there's a conversation uh, that we didn't really put in the doc here between Hurin, his father, and Morwen, his mother, uh, talking about like, well, why did he give that away? And Hurin basically says, well, he had all three to give. The He said, how do you phrase it exactly? It was like, he had all three to give. And you're like, all three, what do you mean? And he says, love, pity, and the knife, not the least. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, okay. So he's giving away love. He's giving away pity. Who cares if he gives the knife away? Like, it's because it's done out of love and pity. And Morwen is like being kind of the stoic, logical, rational person she is. She's like, yeah, but does he really deserve it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's just kind of an interesting conversation that they have. Yeah. So this is kind of bringing us to the end of the chapter here uh, where Turin awake, uh, is awakened one morning by really loud trumpets um, and he runs to the door and opens it and looks out and just sees a giant group of men that are on foot and on horse and they're fully armed and ready for war. I mean, he's still, I think, eight years old at this point. So he doesn't doesn't really, I mean, know what's going on. He wasn't in the councils of his father, even though they've been preparing for a long time. Uh, he, I, I'm sure he was just completely caught off guard by it. Um, and the people that were in this company was the like immediate company uh, of Hurin. So this is like friends, family, close relatives, um, you know, the house of Hurin. So there's only about 50 people there, but they're getting ready to march out and meet up with Huor, who had left a little bit earlier and his his company. And then they're going to meet up with the with the Eldar and and plan battle and get ready to go. Uh, and. When Morwen says farewell to Hurin, uh, she Tolkien says she said with uh, without tears, "I will guard you, or I will guard what you leave in my keeping, both what is and what shall be," um, which is an interesting way of saying, "Well, I'm pregnant," <laughs> um, because remember they have another uh, child, Neonor, who we haven't really talked about yet because she's still uh, pregnant, which. I wonder, Tolkien doesn't really say, but I wonder if um, if Hurin knew she was pregnant or if that was Morwen's way of like telling him as he's leaving. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and it was at this point where Hurin, he, I mean, just picture it like they're all arrayed for battle. They're in their, you know, their armor and their short swords are super sharp and glinting and and Hurin picks up Turin and puts him on his shoulder, just like a dad would. And he yelled out to his whole company, said, let the heir of the house of Hador see the light of your swords. And they all lifted their swords. They unsheathed their swords and held them up. And they cried out with the battle cry of the Edine of the North. Uh, and I'm going to butcher this, but it was 
Echo Kalad, Dragal Morn, which is Flame Light, Flea Knight, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and at that point, they rode off, and Turin and Morwen just watched them right away until they could no longer hear the sounds of the trumpets or or see them. Yeah, that's such a cool moment that he, again, his father is, is creating moments, memorable moments, like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. So, like, hey, look at this, check out this army, but also, like, for Turin to he, he's honoring him being like like you're my heir you're of the, you're of this house and this is what this house looks like the house of Hadar yeah. and we're strong and we're powerful and this is if you, if you never see me again let this remind you of who who we are yeah yeah I think I think it's a fantastic way to to see himself off you know yeah well man I I loved this conversation because again like reading as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast like reading this this chapter for me I, i'm not super familiar with children for and i've tried to read it a, a, once before and didn't really understand any of the characters the context what was going on and so it, it just kind of left me confused and and I, I was scared to jump back into it but just being able to dissect this with you even and seeing the thing <clears throat> the the things that stand out to you was, was super helpful so i hope that's helpful for everybody listening as well that they can kind of uh, read along and and hopefully we bring things to uh, to the light that you were like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't understand. That's what Tolkien was talking about. Yeah. And if you are reading along, let us know, um, yeah. reach out to us or leave us shoot Sam an email. Um, we'd love to know that you're reading along. What things stood out to you? Did we help you, you know, understand some connections? Cause like Sam said, it just kind of throws you into the middle of a story that's hard to pick up on. Um, or were there any, was there any dialogue that really stood out to you? Was there any, I mean, these types of stories within me, the dialogue really brings out some emotion and I can, I can almost feel like I'm there in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm curious yeah. what, you know, if you are reading along, let us know, let us know what parts were important to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, like we mentioned in the last podcast, we don't, we don't want to be doing this in isolation. We want to invite you guys onto the journey with us. And uh, again, it's a, it's a tragedy. It's a hard, uh, heartfelt story. And so there's a lot of emotion, like you mentioned that, that goes into it. And I think Tolkien really let his, ability of writing show a bit in this story too i mean obviously he's he's the master of detail we know that from lord of the rings the hobbit you you see that in his writings but you get a whole different side of his writings i think through through this kind of stuff through fleshing out the children of Hurin and, and a lot of the emotions that we see as opposed to lord of the rings where you know you just kind of have to push through i mean there's there's definitely really good writing in that don't get me wrong but i feel this is a bit heavier and he's he's yeah kind of showing off a little bit like his ability to write and have such range sure i completely agree yeah well, any last thoughts on the on the first chapter no i i'm uh i'm ready to get this story going the first like three-ish chapters are relatively slow because it's really setting the stage for Turin, who isn't really the main character yet um but kind of like i like we already mentioned paying attention to his personality and the traits of his parents um, going forward will help explain a lot of his actions and it, it helps the story make more sense. So I think these chapters are pretty important, even though they can be kind of confusing and overwhelming. Sure. Well, next week we're going to jump into uh, chapters two and three battle of unnumbered tears being the next one to jump into. So that'll be very lighthearted. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
But until then, it is the time of the podcast where Seth and I break into the halls of Metasild and we shout, Gondor calls for aid. Will you, Rohan, answer? If you enjoyed the podcast, please light a beacon by sharing it with fellow friends and fans. But also don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Again, please share your Tolkien story or any insights you're getting with this book or anything you want to share with us. To uh, us, you can reach out to us on social media or you can email me at weckpodcast at gmail.com. But again, like I said, next week we're jumping into chapters two and three of Children of Hurin. But until then, we thank you for joining us for some well-earned comforts and we bid you a very fond farewell. <laughs>